All right, it's the DT difference. It's 30 years experience in the game, DT systems. E-collars we've been using for a while now, but let's quickly talk about their dummy launchers. They got the Super Pro dummy launcher and the remote dummy launcher. It's a great way for you and your dog to get ready for duck season. Loud bangs, make sure your dog's cool with gunfire before you use it. But I want you to add it to your repertoire, bag of tricks, and get you and your dog ready for duck season. It's the Super Pro Dummy Launcher by DT. Gunner Kennels, baby. Hashtag man's best kennel. Well, it's also now hashtag man's best food crate. It's freaking raccoon proof. You can't get into this thing. Your dog can't bust into the lid and eat all the food. Trust me, I know Memphis has done it in the past. She looks like a blown up pumpkin. Boom. But not anymore. We've got the Gunner Kennel food crate. It's easy to pack easy to store, keeps food dry, which food's an investment, man. That Purina, baby, it ain't cheap anymore. So keep it dry, good, all that stuff, easy to pack, easy to store. The Gunner Kennel Food Crate, slide into DMs if you'd like to learn more. Force fetch, what is it? It's super intimidating to so many people, yet it's not that difficult. I built a step-by-step process that helps you understand it, you and your dog can be successful in it, and it takes the intimidation away of the process so that you and your dog can get to your goals. That's what it's built for. Let me teach you how I do it so that you and your dog can do it. Different breeds, different personalities, problem solving, and more. Check it out. Links in the description. The Force Fetch Course. Baby. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. We've got a good one coming for you. We've got our good friend and multiple time guest, the Retriever Coach Kevin Chef. Baby, he's coming at you. We're going to talk all about collar conditioning. And real quick, we had several great questions come in through our Patreon, and so we're going to focus on those a little bit throughout our conversation. But check us out patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. It's our community. It's me and you, baby, sitting here, having a happy hour, talking about dogs, talking about training, helping you get to the next step that you're looking for. So check us out, patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. And if you listen to our last episode, you've learned that we're in a new arena. Purina, baby. The food that fuels the truck of Lone Duck. We made a switch. I hope you understand. I hope you listened to our last episode and learned why. But we're excited to be fueled by Purina. And so we've got a mix of ages of dogs. So our our big dogs, our over-a-year-old dogs, are eating Purina Pro Plant Sport 3020. And our young baby puppies are on their Pro Plan Large Breed Puppy formula. Next up. Gunner Kennels, man's best kennel. American-made, they understand the unspoken bond just like you and I do. Check them out, Gunner Kennels, on the old Instagrams. Next up, shoot or shoot, baby. Mm. Mm. That bismuth, that Kent. Instagrams, Kent Cartridge. Check them out, tell them that Lone Duck sent you, and don't be a Scrooge, get you a couple boxes of that bismuth, baby. Traeger Grills, smoke them if you got them, baby. We had a little bit of 
ribby ribs and wingy dingies at a local Charleston smokehouse the other day, and it got me thinking, time to get off my butt and make my own. Uh, Trigger Grills literally has never made it easier for a dummy dog trainer like me to go all in and make excellent meals. Traeger Grills, smoke them if you got them. Next up, Dr. E Collars. This is the collar that is in my back pocket, in my hand, and in my hunting bag as I'm going to the field with my dogs. In the field uh, training, I use the Edge RT, three-dog unit, bingo, bango, bongo. And then when I'm out hunting, I like the 1900S. Kevin has the 1902S, which is a two-dog unit with the same remote type of deal, same setup. So check them out, Dogtra Official on Instagram. Next up. You guys heard the podcast a few weeks ago with our good friends Kat and Ethan from Standing Stone Kennels. They joined as a new partner of our podcast, and they have StandingStoneSupply.com. This is a resource for you all to jump in, get bumpers, get leads, get collars, get launchers, and, and all sorts of good gun dog, bird dog, retriever gear. StandingStoneSupply.com. And lastly, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. They keep us in tune with you. You in tune with us. All right. Welcome to the show. Our good friend, Mr. Kevin Sheff. This is his third debut. Welcome to the show, buddy. Thank you for for uh, joining us. Hey, thank you. I, I'm uh, excited to be here again tonight. Uh, I think this is going to be an interesting podcast. Yeah, as I alluded to into the intro, we are going to discuss pretty much all things collar conditioning and all things e-collar when you're training your retriever. Um, Kevin is extremely articulate and extremely organized compared to me and my Kevin, and so he's got a bad-to-the-bone list of things that we want to cover on today's episode for you. So, Mr. Chef, I'd like you to take it away, buddy. Sure. Um, again, thank you for having me. Um, you know, when I called you up or, or texted you, said, hey, let's do another podcast. Uh, I really called you with, with intent uh, because doing what I do, working with people all the time, different people all over the country, one of the things I see on a regular basis is just a lack of understanding of how collar use works and how the application of collar pressure it's sort of poorly understood across the country. I think just sharing a little more insight into how to use the collar, how it affects our dog's behavior, um, could really help people improve their game to when it comes to training our dogs. So I'm hoping to do that tonight. Yeah, I think it is, I would say, collar conditioning, force fetch, and as basic as it sounds, getting a dog to bring something back to you. Are, are the three main questions we get on a daily, weekly basis. And so this is a, this is a, a major, I'm going to say touchy subject, because if we think about it, our friends over in the UK, you can't get a knee collar. There's a lot of misnomers out there on the device, on this training tool. There's a lot of, um, even folks in our country that like to do it the old school way without an e-collar. You know, some people call it the Amish method. Uh, or or like some of our friends with the British Labradors, they, they don't use a collar. 
And so there's a lot of misinformation. Um, there's a lot of taboo stuff around it, yet it can, in the right hands and with the right guidance and with the right education, be the best tool around. But to your point of something we're going to cover today, it also cannot be. So let's get into it, bud. Let's dive yeah. deep. Yeah, I think you, you've said it best. I don't even have to repeat that. Um, it is a great tool, and used properly, we can um, actually do some some good things with it that I think lead to less pressure on the dog than some of the older methods when we didn't use a collar. Uh, a lot less pressure, in fact. Um, so I think it's an improvement over what we've been doing in the past, and I'm truly glad we have it, and I'm truly glad that we can use it here in, in our neck of the woods. Um, I also think about, you know, some of these callers that are keeping dogs in their yards from getting on the roads and getting hit by a car. I mean, in some countries, those are outlawed, and that's unfortunate because we could be saving a lot of dogs' lives with those. Kind of getting off track here, uh, but yeah, uh, uh, I do think the callers a very valuable, smart, and safe tool to use, and our dogs Absolutely. Uh, don't resent it when used in the right way. So Yeah, so... Uh, if, if I may kind of take a lead for a second here, um, we have a, a Patreon question. I put it out to our community there and said, you know, hey, Kevin's coming on the show. Drop us a comment of what you want to talk about. And so uh, Brian said, asked, at what age do we recommend that we start collar conditioning a dog and what are some prerequisites to do that? That's a good question. Um, I'd say in general, I might start collar conditioning a dog, you know, and some caveats here, but let's say around five to five and a half months. Uh, I, I take a close look at the maturity level of the dog. Uh, some dogs are slower to mature. They need to, to have a little more life experience before we get into the, the heavy lifting. And so I'll, I'll wait a little longer with those dogs. But then we have dogs that are a little younger and they're full of P and V and, uh, you know, they're hard to manage. They're tearing up the house. They're jumping all over everybody. They're not, um, overly affected by pressure. And I think it's perfectly, perfectly fine to get into the collar conditioning a little earlier with them. So it's on a case by case basis. And I forget the yeah. second part of the question. Uh, it was like a prerequisite. What should prerequisites. that young dog understand before we jump in? Uh, that is an excellent question. Um, in my program, I certainly want to teach the dog any behaviors that I'm going to reinforce with the collar. I want to teach them those behaviors first. So I start out with treat training. I use treats extensively to show a dog or how to do certain things. I use the treat to manipulate the dog's behavior, and then I reward them for, for doing that behavior and so, and then attach a word to that behavior. So they start to understand sit means I need to put my butt on the ground. I'm just shaping behavior at that point. But once the dog has the treat training done and they understand these commands, uh, whether it's sit here, down kennel, uh, there's a whole bunch of them that you can uh, teach a dog with treats. Um, then I'll start to reinforce them with pressure. The e collar is not the first form of pressure I'll use. I tend to use a, a pinch collar or a prong collar to do that. Um, 
and then once the dog has had all of those commands reinforced with the prong collar, then I'll overlay the e-collar or use the e-collar to overlay the prong collar corrections with. And that's typically how I'll go through the process. So one thing I'm going to touch on that I think is imperative, big word for me, is overlay. So to answer this gentleman's question on like milestones or prerequisites, you've already shaped, taught, shown what you're asking with treats. Then you use a leash and a prong collar or choke chain or slip lead, whatever that method may be, to have a a different form of control to get these behaviors going. And so this young dog has an understanding of what's being asked of it before they feel stimulation from a collar. Yeah, that's essentially it. You you have to teach the dog the behavior first, then you start to reinforce it with different forms of pressure. And the pinch collar has a little bit more of a physical aspect to it. You can do a little more steering with it. So I feel it's a little fair to do first before you get into the e-collar, although you can, using the pinch collar and the e-collar simultaneously, uh, you begin the conditioning process. You know, you still have that physical ability to manipulate the movements of the dog with with the pinch collar but also by overlaying it with the e-collar, you can transition from the pinch collar to the e-collar, and the dog will understand that. Absolutely. Um, let's discuss how you start collar conditioning. You've, you've shaped, you've used a pinch collar to create a little bit there, and now my dog's five and a half, six months old. It's in your hands. It has all the understanding. Now we're overlaying. Day one, what do you do? Right. So day one, I'm usually going to start, or I shouldn't say usually, I'm always going to start with the sit command. I think that's the command that we use the most with a young dog. Um, so it's the one that's most well-known and a good place to start. Uh, the first thing you're going to do is sort of determine a level of pressure to use. And I think this is this is one of the things on my list that I wanted to talk about. How do you figure out what level of pressure to use with your dog? And what I'm looking for is a physical reaction from the dog that, that says I'm at that right level. That physical reaction should be what I would term as a jab to the ribs is probably the most I guess the the most descriptive term I could use with it, if I press a button and I don't see any reaction from the dog, I know I'm not causing anything to happen. If I press the button and the dog is, you know, for lack of a better term, doing pirouettes or hollering, I know that I'm too high on the e-collar. But if I look, if it looks like the dog's a little startled by the e-collar correction, now I know I'm getting close to what, I, what I'm looking for. The, the objective here is to use a level of pressure that's going to cause your dog to think. When your dog starts to think, then that starts to cause the dog to look at ways to turn off the pressure and to change its behavior. Um, so, yeah, jab to the ribs is the best descriptive words I can use for it. If you're just seeing a little twitch of the head, that's not a jab to the ribs. Um, yeah. So can I have a sure, discussion with in. you on this? All right. So 
there's a couple things that came to my head here. The first is when I start, I start at zero and then I work my way up. So I don't start at a three and see what happens. I start at a, a zero, then a one, or at least on my edge RT, right? It's like a, a low one, a medium one, a high one, a low two, a medium two, and a high two, and a low three, right, all the way through. And if you're a Garmin, Tritronics kind of guy, it's the same idea. It's There's a low, a medium, and a high, turn it up. Low, medium, high, turn it up. And so I'm fi- I'm finding the level as we work this to where I get the response that I want. So I would assume you do the same thing. You don't just pick a number and say, well, let's see if we get the response we want now. It's I start at nothing and build, build, build. Okay, here we are. I see it. I got you. Yeah. I think there's different thought processes that different people use, but mine is very, very much like yours. I'm going to start low and work my way up in trying to find that. I may jump up a little quicker if I don't see any reaction. I know, okay, I've got, I've got to go up maybe two notches rather than just one to try and find this level more quickly. Uh, but yes, I think you, the right way to do it uh, is to start low and work your way up. But try to find that level pretty quickly. You don't want to spend a whole lesson or two trying to determine what the right level of pressure is. Great point. This is, for me, it's within a minute. I mean, it, yeah. it's it's a not uh, three days. Yeah, it's like, hey, within the first two minutes, I've gotten to where we need to be. I'm just feeling it out. Yeah. Um, uh, go on. You're you're rocking and rolling. Okay. Um, so we we are talking about level of. So you do set uh, real quick. So you do you do set first, vice versa. I do here first. Okay. Uh, and that, to me, that makes total sense, too, because it is another command that we use so frequently. The dog clearly understands it. So I think we it's a good place to start. And so whether you sit or hear, good place to good place to be. In fact, you're going to find yourself very quickly. If you're working on sit, you're going to find yourself very quickly transitioning to hear because your hear command is going to deteriorate very, very quickly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we can get into the reasons why after, but yeah, sure. I don't think it matters if you start with sitter here. Um, so when I'm doing collar conditioning, if we're still talking about that, and yes, sir. we start out, uh, I don't preemptively press the button to collar condition a dog. In other words, I don't just say sit and press the button. I don't feel I have license to do that. I'm looking at the dog's response to the command first. And if the dog's response to the command is subpart, then I have license to use the e-collar. So when I say sit, I very quickly have to assess how good is the dog's performance? Is there urgency in the dog's actions to get its butt on the ground? If I don't feel there's urgency there or the dog isn't responding at all to the command, then I'm going to press the button and say sit a second time simultaneously. Um, what that's going to do is, again, cause the dog to think, how can I turn this pressure off? Uh, if I get my butt on the ground quicker, I can turn this pressure off. As opposed to, you know, some people will use the process, well, this is just a good time to say sit and press the button. I don't know if that's the best way to do it. It's not the way I prefer to do it. I want to cause the dog to look for a way out. If there's no way out because they're already executing the command as good as they can do it, 
that's when dogs get frustrated. And that, that, that's one of the things that I'm hoping to inspire people to think about here tonight. Cool. Uh, let's paint a picture for people. I do this all on leash. Everything is under control on leash. And so if you are a prong collar guy or a choke chain guy or a slip lead guy, and that's what your dog knows and understands, and that's what you've shaped that behavior and taught, and now we're overlaying the collar, that's what I'm doing with the collar. It's got a leash on, and we're going to work now with the collar. And so as Kevin's saying, he will ask for the command or, or command the command. The dog understands maybe you lift up on the leash, butt hits the ground, good dog. You are not, I'm assuming, so maybe you could dive into this a little deeper. You have a leash in your one hand, remote in your other hand, dog at your side, you're walking at heel? I mean, to yeah, paint I that picture I, for I'm people. Glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because I don't think I did a very good job there. Um Certainly, I'm walking along with the dog at heel. Here we are walking, and we're, we're walking at a pretty brisk pace. And at the moment where I figure it's time to stop, I'm going to stop in my tracks, and I'm going to say sit simultaneously. In that moment, I'm going to assess the dog's reaction to that sit command. If it's subpar, I have to get the correction in before the dog completes the task. In other words, I see the dog's not sitting. I'm going to snatch the lead that's attached to the pinch collar, down toward the dog's tail. That physical action causes the dog's head to come back, sort of forces the dog's butt down, but it also sort of communicates, okay, this is what you need to do. And also there's an e-collar correction at that very moment as well. And so the dog is a little startled by it. What was that? I didn't like that. What can I do to avoid that pressure now? Well, he did show me with that lead pressure that I need to get my butt on the ground quicker. And I have heard that command many, many times. And I use treats to, you know, he, he taught me with treats what the behavior should be. So I need to do it quicker. That's what the dog is thinking. I need to do it quicker. So when you start again, you say here and you start walking forward and you say sit again. If the dog reacts with urgency and gets its butt on the ground, now you have to mark that moment with praise. Yes, good dog. So you're contrasting failure with success. And a dog says, oh, if I don't sit quickly, I get corrected. If I do sit quickly, I avoid being corrected. Now we've just taught the dog how to turn the pressure off. So, and so, so I, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so I was the two thoughts I had there is, one, another term we would use is creating compulsion, creating a urgency, like you said, to comply quickly, and therefore you beat the pressure. If the dog is working hard and swiftly complies with the command, then they beat the pressure. You're creating compulsion to do a task and, and nothing happens, so they get praise. Then the other thought I had is how I kind of equate it is uncomfortable, comfortable, and praise. So if they don't do what I've asked them, it's a little uncomfortable. Then they comply with the command Comfort happens again. Collar's turned off. Leash pressure's turned off. And then, oh, good dog. And they're like, oh, hey, I did it. So it's like this like little light bulb goes off in these moments where they're like, wait, all I had to do is sit real quick and I get praise and nothing happens. You see that light bulb over and over and over again, repetition, repetition. And they're like, huh, 
I guess I'm just going to sit quick. That's right. That's exactly right. And so I'll, I will continue, you know, doing the, the same process con- until there's consistency in the dog's reaction to that command. And again, I don't preemptively press the button just because I said sit. There has to be a failure there for me to press the button. And if I don't see any more failures, now it's time to increase the level of difficulty. And the way I do that is by doing what they call a rolling stop. So I'll say sit, and instead of stopping with the dog, I'll take an extra step or two. When I take that extra step or two, it's, it adds a little, uh, uh, you know, it gets a little bit cha- Should I, shouldn't I? You know, Kevin's body language is saying to keep going, but his command is saying to stop. And so the dog will be a little tripped up. You won't see the urgency to sit, the confusion, or and you get an opportunity to reinforce the command with the e-collar pressure again. Kevin, and, do you use a healing stick at all? I don't. I, I would, wouldn't say never. I do, would say that there are certain times I'll say to a client, do you have a healing stick in the truck? This situation you know, would best be served by using a healing stick. But no, I don't okay. use a healing stick. Okay, cool. Just wondering. Um, Go on, sorry. So, and then once the dog is um, good at rolling, so I'll keep doing rolling stops until the dog is good at that. And and by the way, you mentioned a moment ago you started with here, and you'll find pretty quickly that your dog's momentum will start to lag when you're working on sit because they're thinking about command and the corrections that they have had and of course the way to avoid that correction is to stop and sit and so they get a little slower they're not keeping up with you and you also have to remember that most of this pressure is happening at your side so now they start to think about not only why they're getting corrected but where they're getting corrected and they want to start avoiding that place and when you see a a lag in momentum I start by encouraging the dog as much as possible to keep up. But if they're unwilling, then I will transition to working on here until I get the momentum back on the dog. All right. So so I'll I'll stop you real quick because I feel like one of the questions that someone who's never done this before would say, all right, Kevin, how many days, how many sessions, how long are my sessions should – this be so if 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 we're going through your method and it's sit first how many sessions do you think before the dog starts understanding from day one to day x where you can start doing rolling stops and you've got to start addressing other things i'm I'm certainly not going to put a number on the number of days or lessons because what i'm going to do is use the dog's behavior you know, how's the dog reacting when I say the command? If the dog's reacting well, there's no sense continuing to do what the dog can do. I need to move to the next step in the program. If the dog's not reacting well, I need to stick with it. Or if they're struggling, I need to maybe go back a step and simplify because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to keep beating the dog up when they just clearly don't understand. Um, So it's really based on the dog's behavior. And one thing I want to mention here, One of the most career-limiting problems that we see in dogs today is a loopy sit, a poor sit in the field when we're running. And oftentimes, or I shouldn't say oftentimes, the whole reason why that is the case is because of poor basics, and it starts right when you do treat training. 
and then when you move on to pinch collar training, and then when you move on to e-collar conditioning, you can't just go through the steps and not look at the quality of the execution of the task that you're asking them to do. You have to look for a high level of execution when you're going through your, these steps because the outcome here will dictate how well your, stop, your dog stops in the field when you're running blinds and then how successful you are when you're running the hunt test or the field trial. Um, I would stress that, you know, I hope your listeners are, are hearing that when I say that. I, so when I'm working with clients that I coach, when I'm watching their videos, I'm looking to see how quickly the dog sits with urgency in all these different steps all the way along. How long should the sessions be was another one of your questions. And th that is a great question. Again, I tell my clients five to seven minutes when you're doing e-collar conditioning, stop. In fact, when we're doing basics training, I tell my clients, don't set goals. In other words, don't say to yourself, well, I need to get to this spot in the training before I can stop. That's a big mistake. You end up extending the lesson way too long. Uh, the dog is overwhelmed. They've stopped learning minutes ago. Um, they could actually be actually regressing because they're no longer putting any mental effort into it. They feel overwhelmed. Five to seven minutes, wherever you are, stop. Give the dog some fun retrieves. You need to have balance in your training lessons. In fact, when I'm doing these sessions, it starts with a fun, re fun retriever too. I do a couple minutes of training. I break away from it to do another fun retriever too. I get back to the training. I do another couple of minutes of training, back to a couple fun retrieves. That's how you maintain the balance in, in your training that leaves the dogs looking to come back out for something more. You have to remember, collar conditioning can be stressful. That's right. Uh, phenomenal point. Phenomenal point. So, even I'm gonna I'm gonna push you because you didn't want to give a timeline, and I understand why. If you had to give an average, and especially keeping in mind this might be someone's first time, give an average. Is it two days? Is it one day? Is it five days? I mean, I think that's where people struggle is like, should they be on this for three weeks? I mean, no. Like, they shouldn't be on sit, collar conditioning for three weeks. Yeah. Um, I, well, if we're just specifically talking about sit, I mean, that could take, I'm, I, I'm really trying to pull a number out of the air that I never really give a lot of consideration to, Bob. So I, I hate to say it takes three days or three lessons. I understand. Because I never really think about it that way. Um, but I would say maybe if you're working on sit, it, it may take, you know, five lessons. And I might get a couple lessons in a day. Um, right. But But again, I'm not sure that's really what it is because I'm always just judging the quality of the work of the dog, and that's what leads me to move on to the next step. If it takes me th three more days, I'm going to spend three days because I know that that three extra days is what might mean the difference between uh, a good career or a poor career. So and you that's... can't catch up on these things later. No, it's very hard to once you that... have a loopy sit. <laughs> that's what Sorry. I wanted you to. That's what I wanted you to say. So I, you know, great hosting here. I fed you a line, and you took it a line and sinker. Why, why so, is your brother laughing at you right now? Because <laughs> <laughs> he thinks I'm a dink. Uh, you you just 
are so lucky. That's the only thing is you're just lucky. Well, Kevin's just that good. That's the, that's the thing. Kevin is that good, but I knew he would give me what I wanted. So you gave a general, very basic guideline that people can maybe understand, but you caveated it with it depends on the dog and you are looking for a result before you move on. You're not just saying Kevin and Bob said three to five days. So I did three to five sessions and now I'm done. You, you gave them what they needed. It's, it's not how many it's, this is the average. And then I don't really move on until I've, I'm confident that they understand and they're performing at a high level and they get it. So I appreciate that. One thing that I feel like we, we say over and over on this show is you have to train the dog in front of you. And so like, what does that dog need? And our last podcast that we just recorded earlier was, you know, uh, somebody was asking like, how do you set up for the day? And it depends on what happens the day before and how the dog is doing, what that dog needs to be successful and to move forward in a positive manner. And I feel like this is kind of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think you guys said it well. So Who said Kevin, it better? <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> oh, I love our brotherly love. Um, all right. So after sit, next, what's next? Uh, w- without getting into a lot of details, because there are a lot of details here. I mean, I'm going to do sit, and I'm going to do here, and... Um, trying to think what else. I wish I had my program in front of me. Uh, those are really the two primary, um, you know, sit, remote, sit, here. Those are really the primary things that I'm going to do my collar conditioning on. Um, I'm, I am I would pull it up quickly here to make sure. No, you're okay. Do you uh, do I heal? I wasn't missing some. Well, when I say when I use the word here, that's the word I use when I move forward with the dog at my side. So here I use the command here to have the dog move forward with me when I'm walking. And I use the command here to have the dog come to me. Okay. And so I would call or condition a dog in both those respects. Very good. I don't um, say heel when I walk forward. Now this is an interesting discussion because I don't know the answer. Do you collar condition down? I don't, but I have had clients do it because it helps to address certain behaviors that might come up in training. I, so it's not like it's it's on a case-by-case basis. All right. So, yes. I would say if I had to put a number on it, 98% of what I would tell you people is I don't collar condition down because I feel like there are certain instances, especially in a young dog, in that transition phase, T-pattern would be my main thought in my head, where they feel pressure, they feel stress, and they quit. And I'm everyone who's not watching, I'm air quoting, they quit. And they're like, I don't understand what you're looking for here, bud. I'm laying down. And yeah, that's, Go ahead, sorry. To yeah, no, you're okay. I, I just think it's... it's uh, if they've been collar conditioned to down, it's a submissive behavior. It's a quit behavior. It's a an escape behavior. Escape behavior. It's something that yes, do I want them to lay down? Sure. If we're goose hunting in a cornfield, yeah, they need to know down. If if I need them to lay down in my living room, yeah, they need to load lay down. But when it comes it's to collar conditioning, I, I don't do it. It's interesting you say that. I, I recently worked. Well, I work with a client on a very regular basis 
she may even be listening to this podcast. And the, a behavior that I would never seen before as long as I trained dogs was blowing the whistle and seeing the dog lay down. I shouldn't say I've never seen it, but I've seen it once not. and it was very, very detrimental to that dog's career. Well, in this case, um, it wasn't something I'd seen before and, um, never really had to work through that problem. And I, she's, she's very much into the obedience. I know she's hearing me right now. Uh, she's very much into the obedience sport as well. And I wonder if that had any correlation and we're kind of getting off track here. I don't even want to get into it, but yeah, that not had any correlation to the reason why when she would blow a whistle, the dog had an excellent stop and sit, but occasionally the dog would lay down and it got to be a bit of a habit. And I wonder if that was part of the reason why. Yeah. The one I'm thinking of was straight pressure related, just understanding where it's, it came from and what, what its life was, was given as it went from trainer to trainer to trainer. And it was high pressure. And, and his response was instead of turn and sit, it was turn. I mean, he had a beautiful stop. I mean, that sucker slammed into a down, <laughs> but when you had cover in front of you and you were out at, you know, Q open SRS distances. That's no good. Um, there's a reason why we teach him sit instead of lay down on a whistle. So it was very interesting to see that. But but I've noticed. Um, I, I just don't collar condition down. I'll collar condition to a place or a kennel. Do you do that? Again, not not really. That and maybe I should. I just. I haven't in the past. I do, do you, use that command place a lot. and uh, So I can I ask you this question on a, 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 just a side note for me? Do you think it's because you had a more field trial background versus training hunting dogs where you didn't have to remote send them to it? Uh, not necessarily. No, I can certainly see the value in it now. Um, because I, there are some drills that I do where the dog has to sit remotely, which I hadn't done in the past, which have become part of my program. So now I can see how there is value to doing it. So it might be something I might adopt. I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't, uh, for instance, I don't hammer this. This is like, you know, just light, low pressure kennel. As soon it's kind of like forced into a pile as soon as they leave and, and make progress, you know, Hey, good dog. And so it's not something that I spent a lot of time on, but you, again, I think it creates a little compulsion at the end of all their collar conditioning where they understand this concept of, you know, I, I just hustle up and I get on that place that I've been doing since I was eight weeks old. Life is good, but no, cool discussion. Can I ask cool. you if there are any other, um, any other things that you might collar condition a dog for? That, that's it. So I do here, then sit, then heal. And really, to me, it's it's very similar idea of how you were saying, like, here and heal technically are about the same. Like, just be with me, walk with me, we're moving forward. Um, when I change directions, instead of popping the leash, I'll let the leash be slack and I'm delivering low or, you know, on whatever, continuous stimulation. They get into heal. Life is good. They get praise. Um, I feel like I'm going to critique myself and be honest with you that I feel like my collar conditioning to sit 
is something in the last six months that I know I need to work on and be more diligent about. Um, That is, and maybe that's why you do it first and I do it second. Maybe I need to do it first. This is all a learning process as we all get better at this and discuss with people we all respect. Like I respect your opinion and, you know, I, but I can tell you right now there are certain dogs that I wish I hammered home that lesson at a younger age, like you mentioned. Um, And I I learned from my own mistakes, Bob, where, you know, we're all trainers that have made mistakes or, you know, hindsight's 2020. We can look back and go, darn, if I just would have done this, then I wouldn't have had this outcome. Absolutely. That's what's led me here. Absolutely. Same here. Um, so I think we kind of, in my opinion, I think we've it, covered the, the collar condition. I mean, not I, all the details of how it's done, but essentially, you know, the things that I think people need to know. Yeah. The concept behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the part I would just maybe touch on one more time is we're finding their working level, which in your description is like a little jab to the ribs where they're like, Oh, I feel that. Um, oh, I remember what I was going to say. They're startled by it. You know what grinds my gears? What's that? When you have a low enough level that they feel it and they sit there and scratch it and people turn the pressure off or, uh, maybe keep that same amount of pressure on and that dog just like sits there and like just kind of scratches at it and doesn't really comply with anything and they're just doing it and they're just like scratching and it becomes like this meh. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? You know what I'm talking about. Well, absolutely. I think that should be the next area that we cover. Is, <laughs> you know, we said, we talked about, you know, what what we're looking for from the dog in terms of a physical reaction from the e-collar stimulation. Um, and you, ha- I think what people need to understand is that, you know, today I operated at a three medium with this dog. Every time you put that collar on your dog, not just when you put the collar on the dog, but every time you push the button, you as a trainer need to evaluate the dog's reaction to that e-collar correction. Because where that collar is placed on the neck, whether the, you know, the skin is wet or dry, whether the dog has got a lot more adrenaline running through its body today, whether the dog is in a uh, an increased level of excitement state versus a worried state can all affect how the dog reacts to that collar pressure. And you as a trainer have the responsibility to assess how did my dog react when I pressed the button? Can Do you I slow down to... for a second? Yes. Because those were like eight different reasons why the level should be different. And those are so, so, so important. And like... People don't understand that when we pull a dog out, it's not just going out and throwing marks and having fun and we're out here. It's I'm thinking from the minute I pull it out of my truck to the minute I put it back in the truck, I'm thinking. My mental capacity is exhausted at the end of the day because of how much I think about what I'm doing. And so to your point, like one thing you said, dry skin, wet skin, what does that mean? Why does it need to be addressed? Um, Overly excited versus calm and hanging out in their house. You know, things like that, that, or stress. Like, how does that apply to how you apply pressure? That's so, to me, that's such a common thing that people don't understand of, oh, my dog works on a three. 
know. Can you just dive into that for a second? Because I do feel like that's so important. Well, uh, I, I hope we're not getting to two different topics, but whether or not you apply pressure based on how the dog feels. But I I do think that, you know, depending on all of those 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 variables that we just talked about, that can cause the dog to react to the e-collar pressure in different ways. Remember, the e-collar pressure application is supposed to inspire dogs to think. And if you're not using enough pressure, the dog's not going to be inspired to think. If you use too much pressure, the dog's going to be unable to think. And so finding or making sure that every time you make a correction, you evaluate the dog's reaction to it and make an adjustment if necessary to make sure that you're using the right level that causes the dog to think is super important. I watch people do this all the time. They make a correction, and in my mind, I'm evaluating it, and I'm going, that wasn't the right reaction I was looking for. And But the trainer continues to use that same level of pressure. If you're not using the right level of pressure, you're not going to get the desired results. You could be wasting a whole day or week's worth of training just because you didn't have the collar level set to where it should be. So for anybody out there that's listening who thinks, my dog's a three medium, well, I would I would ask you to look a little more closely at what you're seeing when it comes to the reaction from your dog. Yes. So I'll, Did I answer the question? I'm not sure I answered the question, but, but maybe you, help me a little bit more. Yeah, I think you're 90% there. So I'll give an example if that that like to try and paint the picture if your dog is hanging out in your house uh super chill and you tap that three medium because it i don't know let's just be stupid and say it's getting on the couch and you told it eight thousand times not to get on the couch and so you're going to decide that today's the day that you're going to say no more couch and you're using a three medium but it's in a very calm relaxed even keel state of mind that three medium is probably going to be too hot now, it probably is because it's probably going to startle your dog. Oh, yeah. It's going to be too, too much. Now, your dog is chasing a rabbit across the road, and he's humming right on that cottontail's butt. You use a three medium, no dice. He's not even going to feel it because the excitement, the intensity of what he's driven for is right there. And he can't even, that three medium is probably not going to feel anything. And so, exactly. And so when he's describing this, or I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think if I can describe it, it would be you have to understand the dog's energy level, anxiety level, um, excitement level. Mental state. Mental state. Where are we? Are we cool, calm, collected? Then it's probably a little lower. If it's jacked and can, and and just over over the top level 10 excited, it, it's going to need a little bit more to get the desired response, and then you can back it back down as you gain control. But yeah. that, that's my thought. I'm not asking people to you know to try to assess that so much before they make the first correction. I mean, you have to have a starting point. Right? Generally, my dog yes. is a three medium. But after you make that correction, if you see it's not in the right place, turn it up or turn it down, whatever the situation demands whatever the reaction demands. And if you use make another correction and you still don't have the right level of pressure, adjust it again. Every correction you make, 
you should be asking yourself that question. Am I in the right place here? Don't waste your time. Yeah, I think that's great. All right, so you're up next. You, you're in. There was something I wanted to touch on that we talked about. Or Oh, yes. Um, you know, all, all our callers have momentary buttons and they have continuous buttons. And you may be asking yourself, you know, what should I use? My personal opinion is you can use either button, but you should always be using it in a momentary fashion. I do not see any reason to hold the button down for any length of time. There are some, you know, there's definitely some different philosophies out there that think about using lower levels of pressure and holding onto the continuous button. Um, But I don't feel there's any... um, should I put this? I don't think there's any need to be holding down a button. If you're making a correction for, to try and address a behavior, the the color correction should always be in a momentary fashion. Now, if you want to add something to that, because I did hear you early saying that you know you use a little bit to shape behavior, and if the dog's away from you, it comes toward you. I, I'm the floor is yours to talk on that. And I'm go ahead. Yeah, um, I think this is a very cool discussion because this might be part where we differ just a hair um i like using continuous stimulation because i know how long i'm holding the button down and so i can feather and finesse the stimulation for whatever i need um typically an or or maybe in my opinion a nick if i just hold the Nick button down. If everyone can close their eyes, unless you're driving, if you hold that Nick button down, it's only going to deliver a stimulation. It's, it's very short. Period it of is. Time. We, can't it, even, we can't even get it that short physically it, it, ourselves. Exactly. So it is so quick. It's a boop, boop feeling that if that dog is like moving too quickly or this or that, they may not actually get what I'm asking of them. And so if I can hold that button down for beep, then I know that it's just enough and I can, I, I'm watching the dog. I'm not just pushing a button and wondering what's going on. I'm watching the dog and then I can let go. And so I can feather yeah, and go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I, you're still using it in what I would term a momentary fashion. You're not holding the button down. You know, these callers will, you can hold a button down for 10 sec, up to 10 seconds, and it will apply stimulation for that 10 seconds. Correct. I don't, I don't think, it's my opinion that that's unnecessary. Yes. You you know, on off, you know, I use both, primarily I use continuous stimulation just like you do, but I use it in a momentary fashion. So I might be very quick, just like you said, or it might be, you know, on off. It could be slightly longer because right. so, sometimes that's how you can increase the level of pressure a little bit without turning the dial up, so to speak. I agree. Um, now, I think one part that I will say, and this is where our discussion will be, that you alluded to, I how I was kind of taught is I'll deliver a to get the desired response. So if I'm doing force to hear, it's not hear Nick or hear continuous, but momentary, if you will. And then they continue. It's here with 
continuous pressure. They get to me, pressure's turned off. I love on them. They won the Super Bowl. And so they get an understanding of this feeling, and then I love on them. And then as they start feeling this, I feather that. So it's a little bit, it's a, lot, a little less. It's a little bit, it's a little less. And, and then I'm just reading the situation, and this is where it's hard to describe as a podcaster and not knowing your dog and not seeing how the dog's reacting to what they're feeling but have done it to so many dogs that I can say, this dog needs way less. This dog needs just a tiny bit. This dog needs a little more. That, but, but I will use that continuous stimulation where I'm not holding the button down for 10 or 12 seconds. I'm holding it for 3 or 1 or .05. It's, it, it's a finesse game to where I think the dog's behavior has changed. It's where I've created compulsion. It's where I've shown them, taught them, and then now expected of them to do what I've asked them. And here's the either compulsion to do it or a repercussion for not doing it. Um, and so I, I, I guess respond to that. I mean, it's, I, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Um, it's not something that I wouldn't say I've never done, but I, I, it has it has not stuck as part of my program. Um, and that's in terms of trying to coach people on that. I think that's rather difficult to ask people to be that have that much finesse. I think most I people agree. are pretty crude at operating the collar. Uh, if you know, there are situations when I make a collar correction and the dog doesn't react as quickly as I'd like them to. And in those cases, like let's say the dog you're doing sit to the pile and you ask the dog to stop on road to the pile and you make a, a momentary correction and you could be using the continuous button but it's still in the mo- in, at a moment in a momentary fashion if i feel i have time to get another correction in before that dog completes the task i'm going to make it so it's going to be zzz, zzz, and with each one of those corrections i'm going to say sit so it might be sit 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 if I get three sits in before that dog completes the task, that means that dog wasn't trying hard enough to stop with urgency. And that gives me license to make those extra corrections. And I found that, in my experience, that's what helps to get a quicker response as opposed to holding the button down. My, my, my philosophy is try to beat the next correction. Yeah. And that, that just a slight differences. Not saying one it's, is right or wrong or better or worse. The I approach agree. has to has to work and it has to be ethical. Yes. I think I I feel like if me and you sat down and worked them, it would be like so dang similar on that. But it's that finesse part that's that's really hard to describe because your is about what I mean as well. But it's I can hold that down versus doo 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 doo. I can hold it down for just that hair longer and let go. And and you had mentioned maybe before the podcast or after or before, you know, once we recorded, you know, similar to a, a lardy where it's sit next sit. You know, it's a command with a, the stem and the command again to like reinforce why that happened. Can you kind of dive into that for a second? 
slightly different. I've made some adjustments. You know, that's where I started. You always start with what the textbook says. And as you get more experience, you might make some adjustments. You have to understand that some of these programs were designed 30 years ago or, or maybe even 40 years ago. So, so I think we have to evolve. But the first command is always free, right? I'm going to say the command first. I have to give the dog the opportunity to respond appropriately to that command. And if they respond appropriately, obviously there's probably going to be praise. Yes, good dog. I've got to help the dog understand how to avoid the pressure. It's part of causing these dogs to think. But if I say sit and I don't see the response, simultaneously with the next sit command is coming a correction. And if I can get another one in because the dog still isn't stopping with urgency or sitting with urgency, I'm going to get another simultaneous sit in a correction. That's my process. I don't, I, yeah, I think, no, that's, yes, sir, it did. Yeah, that clarified. Um, you're up uh, on the, your next segment, if you next, will. Next, next, uh, next, next topic. Um, should we talk about choosing an e-caller a little bit? Sure. And I'm not talking I'm not talking about make. I'm just talking about, you know, what I think a lot of people just, you know, they're new to the sport and what they do is they look at the catalog and they go, "Well, that one has the most bells and whistles. That's the one I need." And well, I think or that, it's uh $120. <laughs> or it's $120. Yeah, god. <laughs> And, and I think, you know, that's a good point, which I didn't even think about bringing up, is that, you know, you have to look for quality. And there's not very many collar manufacturers that have quality in their product. And you get what you pay for. And, in fact, there are some manufacturers that are not the most expensive manufacturer on the market, but they make a very good quality product. In fact, a product that you really like, I tend to really like myself. Cool. Um when I'm talking to my clients and they're saying, Kevin, what collar should I get? My, my, these are the criteria I talk about. One, it has to be simple to operate. So if it has a lot of buttons, dials, and toggles on it, you're, you're buying the wrong collar. All you're going to do is end up making mistakes because we have so much going on when we're training a dog. We're evaluating the behavior. We're timing, you know, everything happens very quickly. We have to make split second decisions. So if there's a lot of buttons and toggles and switches on your collar, there's a high probability that you're going to make a mistake when you use that collar. So my feeling is a momentary button, one one momentary button, one continuous button, and one way to adjust the, the intensity of that of the collar. That's my personal opinion. There are some people that want low, medium, and high, and they want to switch a dial on it. I tend to be, to be quite honest with you, I make poor use of the collar when there's too many buttons on it. I might want to make one level of correction, but because I press the wrong button, I've got a different level of correction. So I know for myself, it has to be extremely simple. The other Can I ask which I one you use? Some, my favorite collar is the uh, Dogtra 1900S. Uh, probably I would tell my clients to get the black edition. Mm -hmm. um, that, and I have no affiliation with any collar company. I've never been sponsored by any company. No collar company has ever given me anything. So this is an honest opinion. The reason cool. why I like that collar is, is for that reason. It has one momentary button, one continuous button. And I like how easy it is to adjust the intensity level on the collar. 
I know that if I need to go up, for, first of all, for people that don't know how to use that collar, the dial goes from 1 to 127. If I need to go up, I can go up in increments of 10 or down, down in increments of 10. If I need to get more fine-tuned than that, I can change to adjusting it by a level of 5. And so I often get some of these other clients will show up with other callers that don't have that level of adjustability. And do you think I can find the right level on that caller? It can be virtually impossible. And so we're constantly making corrections at the wrong level with that dog. And I'm not trying to sell a collar here, but I want everybody to be able to train their dog and have the best results they can possibly have. Very good. I think, honestly, and I am trying to sell collars, I think that's why I recommend it to people. It's it's simple. It's very few buttons. It's very few mistakes. You don't accidentally hit something and it's on a different collar or uh, on vibrate or on analog with a light bulb. I mean, it's it's like foolproof. If you can get comfortable pushing this button and this button and just touching that dial just a hair, you can fine-tune it real easily. You really can. And the quality exists in the product. I hate yeah. that I'm selling a product that I have no sponsorship <laughs> with. Well, but, maybe now you but, will, bud. But the, the quality is exceptional. So yeah. there yeah. you have it. Now you well, know where my feeling lies on that. That's cool. All right, you're up again. Uh, in no particular order here, um, I'll just talk a little bit about direct pressure versus indirect pressure. Uh, yeah. Some, pe- some some people may have heard the term. Some people may know what the terms are, but I think. You know, for a lot of new people out there, they may not understand what those things mean. And I think the simplest one to understand is direct pressure. And most of what we're talking about right now when we're talking about collar conditioning is direct pressure. We say the command. If the dog doesn't respond to it, we say the command again and make the correction. And the command is directly related to the action we're looking for from the dog. So if I say sit and the dog doesn't sit, I'm going to say sit again and apply pressure to that second sit. Straightforward, right? Indirect pressure is using a collar correction and a command that isn't associated with the behavior that you're trying to change. So I'll give you an example. Your dog is jumping up on your mother when she comes through the door of the house to visit. You, Your dog is not going to understand the word down in all likelihood it's it's a little ambiguous or no it's a little ambiguous right it says kind of says stop doing what you're doing but it's not specific enough to change the dog's behavior and so if you attach the correction to a word they understand like sit when you say sit and press the button when the dog is jumping up on your mother now the dog understands what to do with that correction so the dog, or what action he can do to turn off the pressure, the dog will sit, apply pressure, and it causes the dog to think, what was I doing in that moment when I got corrected? And if you make several corrections like that when the dog jumps up on your mother or somebody else, eventually your dog's going to go, you know what? I'm getting corrected because I'm jumping up on that person. And that's how indirect pressure works. Yeah. Kind of, sorry. Sorry. No. We. And that's we, just one simple example of it. Exactly. Exactly. We've talked about it a good bit on the podcast. 
trying it's such a difficult thing for people to wrap their head around because they're so used to sit means sit here means here and, and I'm using it for those respects but things like a dog coming back with a bird and being hard mouthed uh chomping a little bit instead of saying hold or and by the way the dog is holding the bird he's just chomping on it while he's holding it so yeah. it's ambiguous right it's I such am holding a... what are you talking about <laughs> right you might use So what do you dra- do when the dog does that tell us Kevin <laughs> it would be a little here it'd be indirect pressure so I'm putting a little e collar pressure on the here command the faster exactly. they come to me the less they think about doing this chomping yeah, or you know, just to explain it the way I did too, is like you are, you're applying a correction to a command that they know and understand, and they think about what was I doing in that moment when yes. I got corrected? I was chomping the bird. Make several of those corrections, and you see the bird chomping go away. Or the dog is at your side, and they're doing the same thing, and you say sit and make the correction. The dog may even already be sitting at that time when they're chomping on the bird, but that indirect pressure tends to affect the dog's behavior that they were exhibiting at the moment you made the correction. Exactly. And we'll also make other field, we'll make other field corrections. For example, uh, this is just a simple one uh, of indirect pressure that you might use in the field. You're doing a cheating single. The dog uh, attempts to run around the pond when you're doing the cheating single. You stop the dog. Then you blow the whistle and make another correct. Uh, sorry, you blow the whistle you blow an extra whistle and make a correction and then you handle the dog into the water. You didn't correct the dog when they were running around the water. Again, that would be a little bit ambiguous to the dog. The dog's running around the water and you just cold burn the dog. That would be direct pressure, but the dog wouldn't understand it. Exactly. And by applying the correction to a command they know and then showing them the way out of trouble, they start to learn after several of those, I need to get in the water indirect pressure I, I from what i understand was uh developed by rex carr and and it was shared with the rest of uh, you know much of the retriever community through mike lardy we owe those two people a lot of gratitude for helping us understand how to use the collar correctly i agree uh, yeah i agree i i bought a dvd from rex carr and it was like 1990 1992 so i hate to be like man i was you know four years old at the time when they did this but it was pretty dang applicable still to this day on teaching and molding now like you had mentioned some of these things are so old that like yeah we have evolved but there are principles of how dogs learn that they learned when it was 20 bc because dogs understand dog psychology. I mean, it's it's teaching dogs how to learn, how they understand how to learn, and we're just putting them in human terms to try and teach people on a podcast in 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, those, those guys really taught us. And I wish they were, like, obviously Mike Lardy's still here today, but I wish Rex Carr, could you imagine what he would have come up with now? With even more finesse oh, in it? I, I can't even imagine. I mean, he was brilliant, uh, just like Mike Lardy's brilliant dog trainer. Um, I wish I knew a fraction of what those people knew. And the, the reason, 
I know for Re in Rex's case, I believe the reason why he knew so much, what, what, not just because he was brilliant, but because he spent a lot of time watching, observing, trying to understand. He just wasn't running and training dogs. He was literally trying to understand why things were happening the way they were. And that's how his methods helped us evolve to where we are today. Yeah. And I would hope that all all the people out there that were listen, are listening, I hope I, one of the things I would hope that I would inspire them to do is to not only watch what their do, dog is doing when they're training, but if they're training with other people, use those opportunities to learn more about training and understanding dog behavior. When your training partner does this and your dog reacts in that way, see that, understand why it's happening. It could be as simple as going from the truck to the line or the behavior you're doing online, you know, that that other person is doing online. It's affecting the way the dog is reacting. That's, I've learned more in the last five years watching other people train than I believe I, you know, I learned the, the basics of dog training and the, the textbook work of dog training. And of course, the dogs taught me a lot during that time that I was a dog trainer. But actually watching people, the rate at which I'm learning now, simply by watching other people train dogs, is incredible. Yeah. Incredible. So, so I hope I inspire people to do that. Be it, Pay attention all the time. One of the I gifts, think. real quick, that I was given when I started this company as a t-shirt and hat company years ago was I got the opportunity to be mentored by a ton of different people. I, could, I took my one dog... And we went and slept on couches up and down the East Coast. And I was able to be a sponge on the things that I liked and didn't like, how they handled situations and, and how I didn't want to be that way or like, holy cow, I really want it to be that way. And it's not all the positive stuff that you see. It's some of the negatives that you say, that's not how we do it too. I'm going to do it a little differently. And we're going to find out how to do it differently. So the next area, area of... Um Use, use of the collar that I would like to cover is basically timing of correction. And I'm talking specifically about field corrections. Um, depending on the timing we use when we apply collar pressure, it can really affect the dog's momentum in the field. And I want people to understand that, you know, we can affect dogs momentum negatively or positively and depending on what the dog's behavior is we may want to do one or the other i think the easiest place to start is with uh, dogs that we might want to reduce momentum so when we think about behaviors where dogs might want to reduce momentum we're talking about the dogs failing to stop on a whistle the dogs auto casting those are the two primary things where i think a dog has too much momentum and generally, if we're going to address that with the e-collar, the timing needs to be that we're applying the pressure when the dog is moving away from us. If the dog is moving away from us and they're looking toward the retrieve and they get corrected, that's going to stifle momentum toward the retrieve. And in my mind, at least, that should be the only time, at least that I can think of at this moment, where dogs should be corrected while they're moving away from us. The problem that I see uh, a lot of times is that that is the default way that trainers 
apply pressure. In other words, every time the dog makes a mistake, they apply pressure as the dog is moving away from them. I would like to use an example of, you know, I've given examples of what would decrease momentum and how do you increase momentum or maintain momentum toward the retrieve. I talked a moment ago about the dog that's running around the pond because that's the easiest example to give. The dog is attempting to run around the pond on uh, on a cheating single, and I think one of the things that I see a lot of people doing, which I would encourage them not to do, is they will blow a whistle and make a correction as the dog is moving toward the retrieve. If you want to maintain momentum toward the retrieve, you would change the timing so that you blow the whistle, get the dog stopped. Once the dog is stopped sitting and looking at you, you simultaneously make a correction and blow another whistle. Now the dog is getting corrected for the behavior that you, uh, that you didn't like. And because the dog is looking toward you and not the retrieve, it's going to continue to encourage momentum toward the retrieve. Bob, if you're the dog and you're looking at me when I make that correction, if I make corrections like that, you're not going to want to sit there and continue to look at me because you're going to start to anticipate other corrections. And that's what's going to encourage the momentum toward the retrieve. Um, other corrections that are similar to that in nature might be a force correction. But before I get into that, do you have any questions about what I'm talking about so far? I, I don't. The only thing is I do do that differently, but I don't think by much. So I'm trying to put it in my brain as I'm listening to you like, oh, I think we're on the same page. So let's use the cheating single as an example so that I can understand how you would teach I mean, I don't really want to have a segment on teaching cheating singles, but... No. Well, let's use another example. The dog is uh, running a blind. It's a crosswind blind, mm -hmm. and you've given the dog a cast into the wind. You may have given the dog a couple of casts into the wind, and it hasn't responded appropriately, and you decide, I'm going to make a correction now. Yes. How do you apply the pressure? I would tweet, Nick. Tweet, cast, or cast. I would then tweet, no here, bring back to where they started making the mistake, tweet, cast. I probably would start with the, no, like, no collar first, where I'm, again, you talked about momentum. I'm going to take away a little bit of the momentum in the direction that they really feel like they belong, that they're going. I'm going to slow them down, bring them in 10 feet, sit them down again cast. If I don't get the change of direction that I want, it's going to be tweet, stimulation, tweet. Let's talk Probably. specifically about timing though, rather than a whole methodology in, in, in addressing okay. the, in addressing the, um, the, 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 the dogs not taking the cast. Um, okay. Really? I, Cause that's, what's most important here. That's the, the timing that is the timing of the correction. When, the dog, when you think it's time to assess the dog a correction, where are they looking when you press that button? Are they looking toward the retrieve or are they looking at you? They should be looking at me. They should be looking at you. That's correct. That, that's how I feel anyway. It should should is kind of the caveat, but they should be looking <laughs> should. at me like, you sung yeah. gun. 
Yeah, and this is where, you know, calm, cool, collected heads prevail. If you're not calm, cool, collected, and measured, you're not going to have good timing. You know, you can't, we have to really try not to allow our emotions to enter the equation when it comes to training our dogs. And if you're upset because the dog didn't give you the cast twice, and you your timing is off, and you press the button when you blow that first whistle, now your dog is getting corrected as you move toward the retrieve. One correction might not might not matter, but if you consistently make corrections like that, you will see a change in your dog's momentum, and that will be exhibited through, you know, maybe the dog is not moving as quickly toward the retrieve. Maybe it looks like they're nervous about moving toward the retrieve. Maybe you're seeing popping. Maybe you're seeing spinning. Maybe you're getting no-goes because the dog start to anticipate getting corrected as they're moving toward the retrieve. They're afraid to make a mistake, so they move super slow, anticipating themselves making a mistake. Right. They're afraid to make a mistake because of the timing. Well, they're afraid to make a mistake. Of course, dogs are afraid to make mistakes, whether or not you make the correction when they're looking at you or they're looking toward the retrieve. However, how they react to that those corrections can be totally different dependent on the timing you know again corrections are used to cause dogs to think but it will affect other parts of their behavior depending on the timing of course and so again i'm encouraging your listeners to make sure that the dog is stopped and looking at them before they make the correction when you're t- and we're talking specifically about addressing undisciplined behaviors other than a failure to stop or auto casting. If a dog is auto casting or it's not stopping on a whistle, obviously we want to degrade some of that momentum and we're going to put direct pressure on that on that sit whistle as they're moving toward the retrieve. That's going to encourage those dogs to stop when they hear the whistle. Make too many corrections like that and you're going to start to see the behaviors Obviously, if it obviously if if it encourages dogs to stop better on the whistle, then you know it's degrading momentum. So you would only, yeah. you know, logically start to think, well, maybe if I make too many of those corrections, that momentum is going to continue to degrade over time. The dog is going to be nervous about making decisions as it's going toward the retrieve. The dog is going to be less nervous about making decisions as it's moving toward the retrieve if it isn't moving toward the retrieve when it gets corrected. That's a huge that this this really was the the the, the purpose of me coming here today and talking because I get yeah. calls all the time from people who are saying, "Kevin, help me. My dog is popping on the way out to retrieve. My dog is doing all these other funky things. My dog is spinning. My dog is, you know, I went, I went out and trained with somebody today and, and they had a dog that lacked momentum toward the retrieve. And it was probably for these reasons. So, um, so let's actually, I mean, timing is crucial. I, all right. hundred percent agree with you. I think if I had to ask you to just jump in with both feet a little bit further, because I, I do think you have painted the picture of when you deliver that stimulation, you want the dog to have complied with the command. Let's just be it, sit on a whistle. You're not doing it until that dog turns and looks at you. You give a 
I need to stop you right there. Yeah, you help me. Dog didn't, you, you said the dog didn't stop on a whistle. That is a moment where you can correct the dog when it's moving toward the retrieve because you need to stifle some of that momentum that the dog has. Thank you. So let's talk about a different behavior. Okay. Unless you want to go further on that one. Uh, maybe in a second, but you're right. I misspoke. Uh, not changing direction. So we're running a blind retrieve. We stop the dog on a whistle. Give it an ang- a 45-degree angle back to the left. Dog turns and digs straight back. What do you do next? Well, the first thing I'm going to, before I talk about, you know, color correction, the first thing I want to say is I have to ask myself, why is the dog doing it? And from there, if I feel that the dog is being undisciplined, well, and then I can assess it a correction. If I feel it's for other reasons, I might do other things. But let's say that I feel the dog is being undisciplined. Once that dog is stopped and sitting, you know, and they only have to be doing that for a second. I just want to make sure that they've spun around and they've planted their butt and they're looking at me. It's gonna, there's quickly going to be a correction and a whistle simultaneously. It's an indirect pressure correction. You didn't give me the cast I was looking for. You were being undisciplined. I want to cause you to think and change your behavior. Do you ever give them a benefit of the doubt? It, here, so oh, here's, here's... Absolutely. Okay, yeah. That, to me, this is where, like, finesse, thinking on our feet, reading the the things and so we can talk about the a plus b equals c but it's 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 harder to describe to people like we are right now of why didn't you do it then because i bet you you would be training with people and they say why didn't you give a correction there you're like well you know it's this dog or uh, you know what i'm saying like I don't know why. Sometimes I try and tell people, like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't know why I did that. Well, it's, it, that's where the art of dog training, that's your gut instinct, right? Right. You, you are using your gut instinct to determine whether or not you're going to correct the dog. And I'll put it this way for your listeners. It's not what behavior that demands a collar correction. It's why the behavior that may or may not demand the collar correction. And as a trainer... That's what you have to ask yourself. Somebody who's new or maybe doesn't understand why dogs are doing some, certain things will only look at the behavior and say, the dog didn't give me a cast, therefore I must, I should correct the dog. That's not a good reason to correct your dog. In fact, it could be detrimental. You have to ask yourself, why didn't the dog give me a cast? Well, maybe it hasn't had enough training yet. Therefore, I don't have license to give the dog a correction. I need to do some more teaching. I'm going to use another. I'm just going to keep casting the dog. I'm going to use some attrition and, and get the dog there that way. And over time, when I feel I've put enough layers of training on the dog, then I might feel that I have more license to correct the dog. Yeah. So I'll give a, a general rule of thumb, and, and maybe you can help me elaborate more. But I look at it like, does the dog hear me does the dog see me does the dog understand what i'm asking of it if the any one of those if not all of those are not set in stone maybe the dog can't see me maybe the wind's blowing and it's running through running water and i'm blowing my whistle and it's not sitting or it's you know didn't take that cast because uh 
I'm in a black jacket against a dark tree line or I'm in a white jacket and the sun's beaming off my dog trail. Like there's tons of things that I'm thinking about. If, if I can check those boxes in the split second and say the dog understands what I'm asking of it, it can see me plain as day and it hears me tell it what to do or sees me tell it what to do. Then I can say, this is a fair correction. If I haven't put the tools in the tool belt to have taught the dog properly before that, then that's not fair. If it can't see me because I turn around and look and I'm like, dang, I am in the shadows and I'm wearing all camo today. That's my bad. I should step out into the sunlight and see if I get my, my cast then. That would be a fair dog trainer thought. Exactly. I think you put it, I mean, you put it succinctly. Can't see, can't hear, can't and doesn't understand. Everybody take that to the bank and remember that. I can't correct my dog if those things are true. I, I, I don't want to get off the beaten path too much, but I also have to say that sometimes we trained dogs in a certain way that causes dogs not to give us the right response that we're looking for in other situations. I'll just give you one example. If you do a lot of keyhole blinds or narrow corridor blinds, you're going to end up teaching your dog to dig back when you handle them. And so then you get out to it. And if let's say you spend a week working on keyhole blinds, you go run some wide open field blinds and now allow your dog to get offline. Next thing you know, you can't get your dog to, to change direction. So is that the dog being undisciplined or is that the training? Is that what you taught the dog to do? Again, the art of dog training comes in here. And if I can recognize that, then I have to say, whoa, hold on a second. Just because the dog's not giving me the cast into the wind doesn't, doesn't mean that the dog's being undisciplined. I may have taught him to respond to you know, my 45-degree angle back cast that way. Or if you do a lot of shoreline blinds, you'll cause the same thing to happen. It's ahead, being yeah. in, uh, it's being imbalanced, right? Like thinking on your feet. Again, this is the finesse game. This is being a dog trainer, not a uh, dog runner. Uh, it's the finesse game. Why do you think that dog did that? Well, it might have been two weeks of this work you did over here that caused it. And so now I got to debunk a little bit of this and get them back in the middle a little bit. That's a phenomenal point that you just brought up that I, I want everybody to like double tap the 15 second, 15 second, 15 second button and re-listen to what he just said, because that's huge. We can create like, for instance, I'll give you an example. I had, I was, I have a few dogs that tend to dig back very hard. And before the master national, I really needed them to change direction more. I needed them to give me more cast because I knew at the test they were going to revert back a little bit more to digging. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I did drills and and worked on getting more casting. I like what you said. I did what, Bob? Drills. I did drills. I reshaped my dog's behavior through drills because drills give us opportunities for more reps and we get a chance to teach instead of use that collar in our hand to, you know, as, as our teaching tool, which often doesn't work. That's right. Yeah. 
It's a great point. Um, and, and so I, I found now that I'm out of that sink, now I've got those same dogs that in an open field, when I give a, a, a slightly angle back, not a 45, they're taking a 45. And it's like, okay, I got a little out of balance here. I got to bring them back here. It's a constant moving ocean of working. We don't just train a dog to two years old and they're done. It's at seven years old, I'm still fine-tuning things and creating more, better, more precise, more functional, more teamwork. It's a moving target all the time. Yeah, that is so true. I've never heard that term before, moving target, but you're absolutely right. I think that for some people that's frustrating, but a good trainer will you know, sort of try to keep, they're constantly evaluating and trying to understand why is the dog doing this? Why is the dog doing that? What adjustments do I need? How did, how could I have maybe caused that? You know, it's not just about making them better or trying to teach them something they don't know. It might be trying to bring balance back to the, to the dog or, um, trying to fix a problem that I've created. Um, not so much the dog created. Yeah, that's a great point. There's a few more points that I know you want to hit on your your checklist, and I I saw you look at it, so I want you to hit them, buddy. We're at an hour and a half, and this is we're at an hour and a half. I'm going to wrap it up very quickly. No, you do you do it because you don't feel rushed. Please don't feel rushed. You're you're in you're in it. Gotcha. Um, Earlier this week, I had uh, somebody call me and say, Kevin, I've got this dog and I've had this popping problem that I've been trying to deal with for a very long time and I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there that have a popping pro you know have had popping problems along the way and again I believe that most of our popping problems are created you know because of poor application of pressure there's two two things I think I want to cover two things before we wrap it up um and this person has been trying to do all the right things. You know, she's gone back to force to the pile. She's done her drill work, but she just can't seem to overcome the fact that the dog pops. And so I questioned her. I said, tell me about your timing when you're forcing. And I think that most people understand, you know, that the conventional way to force a dog if they pop or they freeze on a cast is to, or even when you do force to the pile for that matter, you, you you get your arm up, you yell back, the dog turns and goes, you press the button and you yell back again. Or if you're doing force to the pile, you send the dog from your side and you, you press the button and you yell back again as the dog's running. I want you to think about our previous conversation. What is the dog doing? What direction is the dog heading in when they're, when the pressure is being applied? They're heading towards the retrieve. Right. So, of course, many dogs will respond fine to that. You know, our retrievers have a lot of go, a lot of bottom end, because we've bred that in so well into our our retrievers. And I think the DNA in, in a dog's brain says... You have to get that retrieve. You want that retrieve more than anything. You want that retrieve more than that food bowl, you know. And so most dogs will do fine with it. But there are some dogs that are 
more cerebral, as I like to say. They might be, I don't know if the right word is even sensitive. I've had some, I've seen some of the, you know, I've made some mistakes over the years and come to realize that the way that that pressure applied actually caused those dogs to become demotivated because they could not see a way out of that pressure. They were trying their hardest to do what you asked them to do and you still corrected them. And then you did it again. And then you did it again. And there was no way out of the pressure. And so those dogs gave up. Or because they were moving toward the retrieve when they got pressure, it actually had the opposite effect. It continued to perpetuate the same problem. The dog continued to pop. The dog continued to question moving toward the retrieve. So I'm going to ask people to change a little. I'm not asking us people. And this is going to really cause a lot of people out there to, to, to maybe get their back up a little bit at this because it, it, it's, it's a change from what the conventional method is. But I would encourage people, if you're forcing a dog to make the correction before you get your arm up and say back. You want to sandwich it very neatly together, very tightly together. But the e-collar pressure should come when that dog is looking at you. So it's button, arm up, holler back. And now the dog's getting the pressure when they're looking at you. If I correct you, Bob, when you're looking at me, how long are you, after several corrections like that, how long are you going to sit there and wait for me to give you the next correction before you start running toward the retrieve? I'm not going to. I'm not going to look back. Yeah. This person has been dealing with this problem for a very long time. Might even be years. Can we talk about this in more depth? Because I find this to be a a really interesting conversation. Um, So one thing that I'm going to just touch on real quick, the term popping. The term popping means the dog is stopping en route to a mark or a blind or en route on T pattern before you blow the whistle, before they get to the desired location, which is a bird or a bumper, whatever you're doing. So that dog is lacking confidence, is anticipating something, is worried about something. It's, it is not completing the task. So it turns and looks at you for reassurance, for from anxiety, from stress, from whatever, but it's turning and looking at you for the, what you would then determine as, hey, I'm going to give you a command to, to continue going where you're going, which would be back. Um, so that's what popping is, turning and looking at you before they complete the task at hand. That's right. They're, the dog should not stop when they're on route to the retrieve until they make the retrieve or you blow a whistle. That's right. So that would be a pop. Now, I would say I like, or at least through my program, where I like to do intermittent in-route force. And I think this is where we're going to get into a cool discussion, and, and I, want, I want to learn from you. So this is, this is not me saying I do it this way and you do it that way. This is really neat, cool discussion. So I feel like if I've done my job teaching them to create compulsion and go when I say back, I'm forcing them to a pile. So we've done collar conditioning. We've done force fetch. We've done, 
and now we're in like forced to a pile. If I'm forcing to a pile and intermittently, not every time, but I can say I can yell and have this little, to me, it's like a tool in the tool belt where if I yell back and I just give a very momentary stimulation just after it. So it's back, boom, back. I can see them, if they understand what I'm asking of them, kick into a second gear and continue progression to the retrieve, and then they get the retrieve, and I say, good dog. There's confusion that can be had there, and I've seen this too, and so this is, I think, where you're going to come into play and help me, where that dog maybe doesn't understand that. Maybe they think they should come back to me. Maybe they think they should sit. Maybe they do a little whirly bird twirl. Um, but in my in Bob's head, I feel like if I can see that dog turn into a second gear when I yell back, whether I apply pressure or not, and I don't mean yell like, ah, I'm not going crazy, back. But if I... If, if they hear me say that and they pick up the pace in the direction they're going because I've shown them what I've asked of them, I've, I've applied a little in-route force during that force to a pile, then to me, and this is Bob's brain, I'm creating confidence to continue that direction because maybe their momentum is a little bit like unsure of themselves. And if I, if they're like 20 yards away from me and I just hit back and they pick up that second gear in that direction. And honestly, while they're learning, I don't really care if they kind of veer off just a hair here and there, but if they keep moving forward and they just pick up their pace a little bit, I feel good about that. I'm, I'm hearing you. I'm listening. I'm learning. I, I, I think when I see dogs with popping problems, and maybe I'm now I'm maybe digressing too much before letting you answer, but when I see dogs with popping problems and they look back and they see my arm up and I'm giving them the answer, I feel like they almost are relying on that answer and maybe I deliver stimulation as well. And I think if, is that how you do it? You would have your arm up you say back and then give a nick. Is that correct? No. Well, let me speak to the first, your first, um, let's talk about, do you sort of start, start to talk about two things, but let's talk about yeah. forcing a dog while it's in route to the retrieve. You've already heard what I said about, you know, how it can be demotivating for a certain group of dogs and they may be some of the best dogs that you have. And it may be why they never really want to run a blind as far as I'm concerned. Um, you're you're also describing a conventional force program right we've this is the way that we've been told to do this for the last 40 40 years mm -hmm. and so it's very hard to change how people have been doing something if it's truly ingrained in us and all the textbooks say that this is how it should be done but what i would encourage you all to think about is can you get the same results without doing what you're doing and prevent yourself 
from potentially ruining a certain group of dogs that could be some of your best dogs because your best dogs are often your most cerebral dogs. I think you can get the same results. You said, I want the dog to turn and run toward the retrieve with a little more oomph. Can you not get the same results by having the dog sitting facing you and forcing them with from a remote position? Do they have to be running toward the retrieve to get the results that you just described? My experience is no, you don't have to do what you just described. You can get the same or better results with the dog sitting in a remote position facing you and forcing them. And the timing should be again, button first, arm up, back, all sandwiched very neatly together. And there are some nuances, some differences in my force program too that, that you know, that that's almost a... Uh, another uh, podcast another <laughs> podcast well you just got invited back um but uh i i have been using i have been using this method for quite a while now mm-hmm. and i you know my experience has led me to believe that i can have better outcomes achieving the same or achieving the goals that you just described and so I would stipulate that I would stick to what I'm doing simply because I don't want to ruin that category of dogs that are cerebral, that are sure. not going to see the way out of that pressure or that are being, or that are getting corrected for doing the right thing. In essence, Bob, you told the dog back, they're running toward the pile and you're going to correct them again as they're doing it. Right. Those smart dogs are going to start thinking, what, what, why am I doing this? If I might, I must No, they're going to think I must be doing something wrong running toward the pile because I'm getting corrected as I run toward the pile. Right. All and right. Sure. As I said before, you will have some dogs that maybe they're not quite so cerebral or they have a lot of bottom end, a lot of horsepower, and they're going to power right through that. And sure, they're going to pick up speed because they clearly understand what the word back means, mm-hmm. but there are going to be those dogs that clearly understand that what the word back means, but they're going, there's no way out of this pressure. I don't like what I'm doing. And that starts to carry over into how your dog feels when it runs blinds. Your turn. Yeah. No, I, I don't know if I answered your question or I addressed what you talked about. I just I, would say that I, think, I don't think it's necessary. So you're not the first person to, I don't know if, We've really had this conversation much on the podcast, so this is cool. But I've had this conversation as I've learned and grown as a trainer with with a few people that ha- have won the crown at the Super Retriever Series and, and have, you know, really good dogs that we all strive to have, right? And some of them do in root force, some of them don't. Some of them force from their side. Some of them force remotely. And I that, think... By the way, that's one thing I don't do is send a dog from my side and force them while they're on route. I used to. I don't do it anymore. Uh, oh, describe that for me. So the, there's, uh, you know, part of a conventional force program says you should send, you know, have your dog at your side, send them. You know, you put your hand in, you say back, the dog takes off, they're running toward the pile. Essentially what you described before, but... 
you set, you say back, you send them toward the pile, they start running toward the pile, you press the button and you say back again. And I don't do it for all the reasons that we just talked about. The dog right. is moving toward the retrieve and they're getting corrected. All of my forcing is done remote. The only time a dog will get forced from my side is if they fail to go when I tell them back. Now they're being undisciplined. I told them to do something. I gave them an order. They didn't go. And how I apply the pressure is totally different. I'm, go, you know, I'm going to apply the pressure in a way that's going to encourage momentum toward the retrieve. Okay. So I'm going to need you to describe that more. So here's how I would do that, and maybe this is what you do too. I would use indirect pressure on here or heel, Move three steps forward using pressure. Sit back. Burst. That's exactly right. Okay. That's that's exactly it. I'm, what you're doing essentially is you're correcting the dog. There's a consequence for not going. That is a correction. It's happening at your side. So you make being at your side an uncomfortable place to be. You're stepping forward with aggression. You want to step forward with momentum. Some people will tiptoe forward. I'm going to say, take four or five steps forward, and I really want you to move toward the retreat because you're trying to create momentum in the direction of the retreat. That's the purpose of moving forward. And it also shows them what direction to head in. Once you've done that, quickly put your hand in and say back again. That will usually get the results that you want. That's for right. The, for the reasons I just described. Yeah. In that moment, you're not here, heel, sit, sit, here, no, here, good, right there. No, it's here, 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 sit, right. good, right there, back. I, ex- I don't even care where they're looking exactly. after I make that Get the heck correction. away from I'm me. I'm going to make the correction. I'm going to step forward toward the retrieve. I'm going to instantly put my hand in and say back. The dog has to go. If the dog doesn't go, then I have to start to simplify I'm going to make the same correction. I can't stop correcting because the dog has to understand how to escape this pressure or how to turn it off. But I've got to give the dog more information. So how do I do that? I might throw a bumper to the pile. I'm going to make the same correction. I'm going to throw a bumper to the pile. I'm going to send the dog again. That would be the next move. All right. Can I ask you a question about this? Because this is this is something that I don't understand. If If I have done... My method would be walking fetch, ladder fetch, a very short force to a pile where they're leaving my side, turning pressure off, going and getting something and bringing it back to me. And then I elongate that into force to a pile. Where there's a, there's two, two things. There's a dog who likes to retrieve so much that it's going to do it because it knows there's a bumper back there. You could say, sit and it goes and gets a bumper sit now means go get a bumper i'm now using the word back right and just because it likes to go get things and bring them back to me that's not force that's That's not force that's a dog who goes and gets things and brings them back to me because it likes it then there's a dog who is average and i've taught it to turn this pressure off and go and get it right so there's these to me there's the dog's I almost feel like the dogs who like it so much need more force, and I mean more force not in level of on the collar. I need to push them past their fun meter to where, man, I'm kind of tired. I don't feel like it. And now your 12th force to the back pile instead of 10 is like, ah, I don't feel like it. Now I get them to stop. 
now I teach them where that moment is of you may not want to, but now you have to. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, it, it does make sense. I, I have a lot to add to that, of course. That's why this is an awesome podcast. This is why you're here, buddy. Kevin, are you getting tired yet listening to <laughs> He's thinking his baby's got to go to bed, but he's good. We're good. We're good. Okay. Um, one of the things I've come to learn over the years is that preemptively forcing your dog to a pile doesn't work very well. What I mean by that is if you say back and the dog goes toward the pile and you, you know, you force them just as you say back, then, and they were going to go anyway, they're not going to really learn why they're being forced, or they may not learn as clearly why they're being forced. You have to have a dog refuse to go in order for them to understand how to react to force pressure. All right, this is where I'm confused. This is where I'm confused. Because if I take the time to show them when they do like it, that this is how you succeed through the compulsion, right? It's not, to me, it's not a correction. You're not getting corrected for not going. You're getting a, a feeling, and as you leave, the feeling goes away. As you retrieve it, we're good. Um, I'm creating this momentum. To me, it's momentum to complete a task, and I'm praising you and thankful that you did it. And then I create a compulsion and then success and compulsion and success. And then as I'm not doing it every time, um, I'm creating this idea that this word means leave, go get it and come back. And so if I can maybe put words in your mouth and you help me, if they only get a stimulation for not going. I know where you're going with this. Okay, cool. If they only get a stimulation for not going, then where is the tool in the tool belt to show them that I wanted them to go? Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. Cool. So, again, you're talking about a conventional force program, one where you preemptively force the dog to the pile even if they were going to go your force you're, you're going to make the correction and tell them to go to the pile um, and that's where I started with a conventional force program and over the years I've I, I am very analytical I'm going to be that's know, again that's why I love <laughs> you because you are you're super smart you're I'm asking myself you know is there fairness in what we're doing? Is there a better way to do something? Why is the dog doing the things that it's doing? And I've come to the, the place in my mind that, a, you know, my training philosophy is a dog should not be corrected unless there's a lack of effort, a lack of discipline, and in some cases, uh didn't complete the task. Let's just put it that way. I asked them to do something and they didn't do it. And this is kind of that gray area, right? There's 
you might say, well, the dog didn't complete the task because it didn't have enough training or experience. But this is where I cap capitalize on moments like this in the force part of the program to get my force in. So let's talk about the force, how what my force program looks like. And I hope, and some of your listeners should also understand what they should be doing during the force program in order to produce these moments where you get opportunities to force a dog that fails to react appropriately to the command. You don't, you've got to be careful that you don't shape the behavior so much that your dog always reacts appropriately when you give them the command. And you, you can do that by doing too much teaching, by doing too much repetition, where you know, when the how should I, I want to make sure I go and say this in the right way, where you, sh you, you just do things, you do the same thing so many times, you pattern that behavior, and by the time you move to the next step, they literally don't fail because they really know what the response should be. It takes, a, it, it takes some, some finesse to do this, but everybody is capable of doing it. I coach people through this all the time. So when you start force fetch, you know, that roller or bumper or dowel is right in front of their face. That's the shortest blind retrieve they're ever going to do. It's that one right there. And you say fetch, which will eventually turn into the word back. But you put it right in front of their mouth and they're either going to grab it or they're not. And I, I, I leaving out a few things. So I don't want people to think that it starts there, but I just we're trying to talk about the application of pressure. So the dog is going to grab it or not. If they don't grab it, it's going to be Nick Fetch. Or it might be a different form of pressure, but it's going to be, with me, it's a lip pinch, lip pinch fetch. And the, the dowel goes into their mouth. I may even have to put it in their mouth. Okay. But eventually that dog is going to start grabbing that, that I use a paint roller. They're going to grab that paint roller when it's right in front of their mouth. The moment they do it twice for me without getting corrected, I have to increase the level of difficulty to try to produce another failure. So instead of it being right in front of their mouth, I'm going to move it six inches away from their mouth, and I'm going to go fetch. And because I've added a new twist or changed things a little, there's a high likelihood that the dog is going to fail to fetch. And it's going to give me another opportunity to make a correction and say fetch. And the dog will either... Grab it or not, that's a force correction. It's the shortest force correct, you know, the closest force correction you will ever do to a retrieve. And you gradually increase the level of difficulty, but you have to be careful that you don't stay in the same place too long. I, as a general rule, I'll say two or three successful moments, increase the level of difficulty. Move the roller further away from the dog. Move it to the ground. Move it further away from the dog. You know, it, I... I don't want to go through the whole force program, but that is essentially how I feel a force program should go. The dog should not get corrected if they comply with the command. If they fail to co comply with the command, either because they don't feel like it or you've added a new twist to it or increased the level of difficulty, that offers you the opportunity to apply pressure. And those dogs will clearly understand why, to, why the force pressure is being applied and how to turn the pressure off. And it's fair. And I think, again, those dogs that are cerebral, who 
go, wow, I'm doing what you told me to do and you corrected me anyway and I just don't like this now because I don't see a way to the pressure, you don't lose those dogs. I got you. I'd like to kind of cut it off there because this could go on for a long time and we can come back and talk about force to the pile and all sorts of things like that yeah. in another another uh, moment. It looks like we're going to do another episode, doesn't it? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I hope so, bud. I'd love to. I, I would too. I've appreciated... You know what I appreciated most about this episode is the fact that there are different ways to skin a cat. And I don't like I don't know, you know how if you nobody can see all three of us, but my eyes are looking away as he's talking and it means I'm thinking. When someone looks away from you as you're talking to them, they're either not paying attention to you or they're like visualizing the situation. And so a lot of what you're saying, I'm visualizing certain dogs in my brain that are on my truck right now of how I can take what you've talked about today and how I can and rethink how I'm working those certain dogs or how I've applied what I've learned over the years, how I apply it currently, how you apply it right now and what you've learned throughout the many years that you've done this job and I'm always, this is why I love this show, and this is why I like having you on, is just because you do it just a, a little bit different, there's a lot that we do similar, and then we can just take one notch forward. And if I can move my program one step forward, or maybe I said something that can help you say something to one of your clients, one step forward, or one listener moves one step forward, We've all grown and we've all gotten better. And so just because we don't do it exactly the same way doesn't mean we can't sit here and enjoy the conversation, learn from each other, and I can promise you that there are a few dogs that I'm going to think about how I handle some things in the next few weeks because they are cerebral. They are thinkers. They don't handle stressful, and I'm air quoting right now, stressful situations well. They need to be finessed differently and i think the way you've described some things to me tonight and to our listeners they would really appreciate this approach um i appreciate you sincerely and i appreciate the fact that you don't do it just like everybody else and i appreciate the fact that you're on here sharing your knowledge with people yeah thank uh, thank you i i enjoy this immensely i i my goal is to help the people out there that are tra training their dogs to be better at it too. You know, I know everybody out there that's listening tries really, really, really hard. They put their heart and soul into this. And sometimes it can be very frustrating when it's just, you're, you're following the textbook, you're doing what you were, you know, taught to do, and you're just not getting the results that they told you you would get. And, and sometimes it's just a matter of making such a small change. The other thing I want to say is, we all owe a lot of thanks to the people that developed these conventional programs and that they they made the huge difference in how we train dogs uh, for the better. And the things that I'm talking about are just small little things that will maybe get a better result with one out of ten dogs when it would have worked fine doing the conventional method. But... Um, I, I, 
I think we should always be striving to to do a better job with our dogs. Couldn't agree more. Kevin, do me a favor real quick. Give everybody uh, your your Instagram, Facebook, website, how they can reach you, email. If they have gotcha. enjoyed these podcasts with you, how can they reach out to you? Sure. Um, my website is The Retriever Coach. And what I do is I teach people how to you know train the retriever, everything from you know, one-on-one coaching to workshops and seminars to actual doing full-time coaching with people. Um, I also do a lot of consulting. I get calls all the time from people that have a particular issue with their dog that they're not quite sure how to, how to work on it. Most of the time, they're very small issues that you feel like are a mountain, but they're really just, you know, just tweak this or do that. And yep, boop, it's, it's all fixed up, or at least you've got a way to manage it. If you want to find me, my website is theretrievercoach.com. My Instagram is the Retriever Coach. My YouTube channel is the Retriever Coach. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, am I miss anything? Uh, uh, Facebook, the Retriever Coach. Dang! Uh, so if you look up the, the Retriever best. Coach, they got you. <laughs> yeah, just Google the Retriever Coach. Give me a call. I love talking to people. Feel free to call me, email me. Uh, it's the Retriever Coach at gmail dot com. Uh, call me. My number's on my website. You can reach out to me on the website uh, to message me. Uh, there's lots going on on the website talking about all the upcoming workshops and seminars, the different things, the services that I offer, and, and I hope you guys will uh, all take a, a moment to to check me out. I'd really appreciate that. And again, thank you for letting me spend some time with you. Absolutely. Well, I think we definitely ended this podcast on a note that we need to do another one. So I'm really, really, really excited for it. So I appreciate taking time out of your busy schedule to be a part of of our podcast and joining us again. So thank you, my friend. Thank you. Hey, if you haven't done it already, jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Counselors. If you enjoy the show and want to support the show, if this show has helped you and your dog grow together, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer and you get more one-on-one from me. You get content that doesn't hit Instagram or YouTube and it enters you to win a free hunt with me and Kevin in Missouri this duck season. So jump on, links in the description. We'd be happy to have you and love to help you. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.